My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello, and welcome to another episode of FW Presents, the catch-all anthology show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and we are continuing the first season of Showcase Gene Colon, a tribute to many great works of my favorite comic book artist. So far this season, we have reviewed Colon's Wonder Woman, Iron Man, The Spectre, and Dracula. This time, though, my guest and I are examining a book with a much lower profile and an original creation of Gene Colon's. The book on today's docket is Silver Blade, Issue 1, and my guest is a longtime fan of the Fire and Water Network who has made a couple of previous appearances on shows such as Panel by Panel and just a couple of weeks ago on Treasury Cast. Please welcome Terry O'Malley to the show. How are you, man? I am very well. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for coming. And um, to, to sort of set this up for people, back around Christmas time, I had the idea for the show and I was compiling the books that I wanted to do a, a list of possible guests. And I had someone else in mind for Silverblade, but not for any real reason other than I thought they might find it interesting, because I didn't know anybody who had ever talked about this book on Facebook or Twitter <laughs> or anything. Then I post my yeah, first... It's not, ep- it's not the most acclaimed book ever, which is... Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know if I've yeah. ever heard anybody talk about this, but then I posted <laughs> my first episode explaining kind of what this show was going to be. And folks, Terry leaves me this comment. If you ever want to talk about Silverblade, I loved that book and read every issue. And I was like, okay, sold. <laughs> uh, I've never met anyone else with a passion for this title, so that was an easy sale. And for anyone who doesn't know what the series was, uh, Silverblade was a 12-issue maxi-series that started in 1987. It's written by Carrie Bates with art by Colin and ink by Klaus Janssen. It is a sort of supernatural fantasy horror adventure, kind of everything story, and it's set in Hollywood. So my first kind of big question is, when and how did you discover this book? And without getting too spoilery, because we're going to cover the first issue, what Mm -hmm. was it about the story that really kind of hooked you? Well, I think you oversold my introduction. Uh, (laughs) I oversold my interest in the introduction. I, when I wrote to you about this, it was almost tongue-in-cheek because <laughs> I'm, I'm keen on uh, the underdog, the undersung, the more rare and unknown things, especially in comics, and this certainly is one of them. But it has stuck in my mind. Now, just, uh, just now visiting Amazing Mike's Amazing site, which is such a great resource, to see what else was on sale at this time because this is at the very end of my active collecting days. So I would have been interested, certainly, in the Gene Colan art. He had already done a couple of prestige format series for DC, which I'm sure you will talk about soon, especially Nathaniel Dusk. Mm-hmm. That, is, so, that is on so the docket for that, probably season two. It should be, because that's, that's a magnificent comic book. Mm-hmm. And I've always liked stories by Carrie Bates, so I thought, I thought I would give this a chance. Now, I'm trying to recreate what my mindset would have been back in the summer of 1987. And as, as I said, I, was, uh, I wasn't buying very many comics. And the comics I was, I was buying regularly, I was just about to stop buying everything. <laughs> that crisis um, on Infinite Earths really, <laughs> really killed you, didn't it? It really did. Uh, at least for, at, at DC, I'd already stopped a lot of the Marvel titles. I just was, uh, I did not enjoy, that. I, I didn't enjoy the vibe of my Marvel comics at that time. And yeah, all my favorite things and my favorite fictional friends at DC were gone. Earth 2 was gone. The 30th century was significantly changed and no fun anymore, although it was going to get a lot less fun. Um, 
and you know, the, the characters I cared about were gone. But I was still, and I still do, enjoy the medium. So I was already starting to read a lot of other kinds of comics. I was getting away from a straight superhero. So I gave this a chance. Now, I didn't continue to buy it, but I have 10 of the 12 issues. I'm still missing a couple of issues. But it was one of these things that I realized not much longer after I got the first issue, when I would still you know, pop into a comic book shop once in a while to get the, the issue of Cerebus I was looking for, or Love and Rockets, or, or Hate. Those are the three things I kept buying. But I saw that these back issues were very affordable <laughs> and quite available. So I said, well, I liked that first comic. I'll, I'll get these others. And I did. <laughs> so, and, that's, and it has sort of stuck with me, although I haven't read it in many years. And so rereading again was a, was a nice treat. And rereading it now as a much greater film fan than I was then, it struck a lot more resonant notes with me. Yeah, I like. I mean, if I had read this as a kid, I don't think I would have gotten it at all. I mean, it, it was. Uh, I'll spoil something for you. Like, it was hard for me to get into it the first time. Um, but mm-hmm. like, I, I think I need. I, I needed a lot more appreciation of the history of Hollywood and kind of like the general mechanics of, of that sort of golden age and and who those stars were and their place in Hollywood royalty to really understand sort of like the stakes and, and the atmosphere and the world of this story. Yeah, um, and when did you come to this book? Where did you find it? I, I, I've heard of it, like, I don't know, for a decade or something like that, and I just, I always knew that it was something Gene Colan did, but I knew that it wasn't a superhero book, so it kind of, like, wasn't really on my radar. I knew it was, like, a maxi-series, and it was never reprinted or collected, as far as I knew, so I assumed it wasn't really well-regarded or, or thought upon, so I I just kind of ignored it. It wasn't until I decided that I wanted to do this uh, this series that I was like, alright, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cast a wide net, and I want to cover things wow, that I've never so read. Wow, so that recently? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I read this oh, for the first time two months ago, three months ago. I wow. Guess. Yeah, and, and the first time I was like, ah, okay, I don't know what I'm going to be able to say with this because I really, uh, like, the story itself was kind of impenetrable to me. And then reading it for the second time to actually write the synopsis, something clicked. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I actually made this mistake, but what it felt like was that I had like skipped a page in the, uh-huh. my first reading because the first time I read it, I was like, I have no idea who this villain is, what he's all about, what he is doing, why he wants to kill these people. I was like, I am completely lost here. What is this story? Carrie, what are you trying to tell me? And it, so I was like, all right, this is going to be a tough one to review. But the second time I was reading it, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Oh no! Okay, now I'm feeling I'm like I'm vibing this. All of a sudden, I was like, I was like, all right, all right. So I don't know. Like the only thing I can think of it was like I I actually like missed a page of exposition in my first read. So yeah, okay. So uh, we will get into this, but uh, first, folks, we're going to take a short promo break. Uh, when we come back after that, get your popcorn and take your seat because your feature presentation is about to begin. Don't. <laughs> Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts, available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.
Silver Blade number one has a cover date of September 1987 and a cover price of $1.25. This was a new format book, so you got 32 full story pages inside. And according to the previously mentioned Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was June 9th, 1987. The cover is penciled by Gene Colan and finished by Neil McFeeters, who gives it much more of a painted poster or novel cover. We see a close-up of the swashbuckling hero with his lady love clinging to his chest. Below them, a retro red car speeds between what looks like a sci-fi spaceman firing a gun at a hulking green gorilla monster. The text at the top says Jonathan Lord, starring in, and then the title, Silverblade, appears on a reel of film. What do you think of this cover, Terry? Oh, it's a magnificent cover. It looks like Colin, but McFeeter's paints, inks, whatever he has done there, makes it look even more like Colin. It's, it's, it, he's not hiding Gene's art at all, mm-hmm. but he's enhancing it to such a magnificent degree. The look on our, our hero's face and Silverblade's face, he's got that really handsome, good-looking guy, nice, big, strong jaw, handsome blue eyes, and he's got a little bit of a smile and a little bit of a sneer at the same time. <laughs> his eyebrow is just subtly arched. There's a lot of movement in his face, even though his face looks it looks fluid and simultaneously stoic. Mm-hmm. He looks, Yeah, he looks like a Hollywood hero. I'm trying to think of which actor he reminds me of, and the only one I'm thinking who who might have been sort of popular at the time that they were actually penciling and painting this one is like uh, Peter Gallagher or something like that. I, I maybe oh yeah, the yeah, broadness of the chin. I'm kind of thinking because I mean he doesn't. And spoilers like the character Jonathan Lord is is going to be sort of based on an Errol Flynn, Tyrone Power type of you know swashbuckling hero. I don't really see him looking much like that. But yeah, oh, I, I everything you said. I love, I love the look. I love how like the painting, like flourish, kind of gives it that that soft look. Um, the the monster, the sort of greenish monster, reminds me mm-hmm. of the beast from um the crate story from the uh, oh, what was the oh gosh, I can't think of the that anthology horror movie by Romero and Stephen King. Uh, uh, I love that movie too. Rob is talking about. It. <laughs> What the heck is uh, it? Uh, Tales, uh, creep, creepy, creep, creep show. show, creep show, creep show. Thank you. Oh, thank Tales from the creep. creepy show. <laughs> yes, creep show. Yeah, the monster on this cover reminds me of the monster from the crate story. In that, um, yeah. And then, and then the sci-fi guy looking at it, it kind of looks like half spaceman, half scuba diver. It's sort of, mm-hmm. but I love that. Yeah, um, it's, it's yeah. a very singular look. Mm-hmm. This cover shows we got. Sword of the Sorcery, we got alien monsters, we got monster monsters, we got classic cars, everything is going to be shoved into this book. Yeah, all of these like fine genres, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I, I'm digging all of these things, so, uh, all right, let us get into the story. Brace yourself. And folks. it looks like, and it's, I did a very quick search here on the car, because in, in the book they mentioned the make of the car, it's a cord, not a Ted cord, <laughs> and I have quickly found an image that has the same kind of recessed headlights in the front fenders, these big, huge front fenders, mm-hmm. convertible coupe 36, 36 cord 810 convertible. So Gene was doing his research even before the Internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same kind of front bumper and everything. Yeah. I mean, whew, what was the you know a story that I, I talked about a long time ago uh, on the Secret Origins podcast? Siskoid and I covered the Secret Origin of the Crimson Avenger. Um, which was a period piece that had, you know, those, you know, period cars, period look with the gangsters and everything and tied it into the War of the Worlds broadcast and everything like that. So love that's one of my favorite stories, my favorite comics of all time. Me too. Yeah, that was one of my uh, I remember at the end of the at the end of the show when I was doing my rankings, that one was really high on my list. That, and that's how you got me hooked on listening to your podcast, <laughs> Mr. Ryan Daly. Because I, I got LinkedIn from uh, Legion of Superheroes site, so it was either Dr. Ange or Siskoid, who hit me to a podcast about the secret origin of the subs, and I love the subs, and I love that copy of Secret Origin, so I listened to you do that, and then I said, oh, I wonder if this guy has done the secret origin number seven with the Golden Age Batman, and you did, so I listened to that, and then I listened to Crimson Avenger, and they said, oh, I might as well listen to the rest of them now. And that was about four years ago, and I've been listening to the thing, every, everything ever since. Uh, I peaked early. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I mean, I, I wouldn't even make that joke except David A. Gutierrez reminds me of it like every month. But you, you start with quality <laughs> material, you know. <laughs> then you move on to Batman Year Two. You know. <laughs> uh, not again, not again. Okay. Right. <laughs> sorry. I'm Let's sorry. get to the story. It's going to take us forever. <laughs> the Lord of Sunset Boulevard is written by Carrie Bates, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, colored by Joe Orlando, edited by Denny O'Neill, and of course it is penciled by Gene Colan with Klaus Janssen inking. In 1987, Bobby Milestone negotiates the purchase of a Maltese Falcon statue for his boss, Jonathan Lord, once a beloved movie star like Errol Flynn, Tyrone Power, and Lon Chaney, known in Tinseltown as the Lord of Hollywood. Bobby Milestone had been a child actor whose first film was the 1940 adventure The Silver Blade, starring Lord. After World War II, however, Bobby was washed up, unable to make it as an adult actor, and he eventually went to work as Jonathan Lord's manservant. After purchasing the Falcon, Bobby walks by a billboard for a modern science fiction remake of The Silver Blade, produced by Vincent Vermillion. Unbeknownst to Bobby, Vermillion is watching him from a building across the street, and a woman with a sniper rifle is about to shoot Bobby in the head when Vermillion calls off the hit, saying he has thought of a better idea. Meanwhile, the aged Jonathan Lord spends all of his time in his massive and mostly empty mansion in the Hollywood Hills, which is nicknamed Shangri-La in tribute to the film Lost Horizon. There, Lord passes the time doing little but re-watching his old films, including The Silver Blade. Through the clips that Lord watches, we see that his character in the film was a dashing, swashbuckling nobleman who was cursed to become a winged gargoyle. The movie's villain threw Bobby's child character, Jeremy, from the castle tower, but the gargoyle flew down and caught the boy, saving him at the last minute. Later in the film, the villain is about to execute the female lead played by Sandra Stanion, when the gargoyle intervenes and runs the villain through with his own sword. Later in the film, we see Lord's gargoyle dying from his wounds. Sandra's maiden cries over her lost lover, and as her tears land on the gargoyle's face, they serve as a magic potion to undo the curse, changing him back into the handsome prince and bringing him back to life. Elsewhere, Vermilion brings in four trained killers to audition for a job. The three best candidates are hired after they are ordered to kill the fourth who didn't meet Vermilion's standards. Bobby places the newest falcon statue on a Maltese tree display with several other falcons. Lord admonishes him for wasting his money, even though the falcon tree was all his idea. He barks orders at Bobby to have the filters in the fish tank cleaned and the intercom speakers fixed before preparing another one of his classic film reels for viewing. Jonathan Lord, once the darling of Hollywood, has become a grumpy son of a bitch in his old age. He is obsessed with his own history, documented in the hundreds of movies he starred in. He loves no one and nothing but the image of himself in his old films. To illustrate this point, we see Bobby watching a videotape of Lord's third ex-wife, pleading with Bobby to convince Lord to pay for her eye surgery before she goes blind. Lord catches Bobby watching the tape and flies into a rage, vowing not to help her. He takes the VCR and throws it out the window. That night, Bobby reflects on how he spent the last 20 years as Lord's butler, cleaning his movie memorabilia, his cars, managing the upkeep of the giant palace. What he used to think of as a museum now feels like a mausoleum. Weary and depressed, Bobby gets ready for bed and fails to notice the image of the falcon statue manifest in a dazzle of light in the bathroom mirror. The next day... Bobby is following Lord up the stairs, carrying his tea tray, when a falcon bust from the top of the railing seems to come to life. It swoops down at Bobby, causing him to fall and drop the tea. Lord didn't see any bird or any evidence of anything besides Bobby's clumsiness. Elsewhere, Vincent Vermillion dreams of dancing in his younger days, dancing with a beautiful woman until she spins out of control and crashes through a window. Vermillion's assistant and almost sniper, Miss Hofgard, comes to his aid and tries to help him walk back to bed. He slaps her to the floor, telling her he doesn't want help. He wants to feel the pain in his weak bones. After that, he wants Bobby Milestone dead. When Jonathan Lord reads that his beloved Silver Blade movie is getting a sci-fi remake, he lashes out at Bobby for not telling him about it earlier. 
He rants about how the film means so much to him, how it was such an important part of his life and legacy, and how it brought the two of them together, so Bobby should be just as offended. Bobby, who had been sorting film reels in Lord's library up to this point, has finally had enough. He throws the silver blade reel at Lord and starts to yell at the man, for all of the shame and indignities he has had to suffer working for this man that he used to idolize. Bobby storms off and out of the garage, but once he climbs in the driver's seat, a goon hiding in the back plunges a syringe in his neck, knocking Bobby out. His kidnapper starts the car and drives off with Bobby. Back in the house, a broken lord clings to the tin of film, calling back that he just wanted to keep what he had in his youth. He wanted to be the lord of Hollywood forever. Not calling to Bobby, really, but to himself. As he sits there weeping, he says he would give anything to be what he was again. And those are the magic words. An unearthly, inhuman voice says they have a deal. Jonathan Lord will have his wish in exchange for being the Silver Blade again. With that, the film prints start flying off the shelves. Tins spill open. Film spins off the reels. Hundreds, thousands of feet of film fly off the racks in Lord's library and reach out like greedy fingers. He tries to run, but it's too late. The film wraps around his legs, tripping him. They wrap around his arms and chest, pinning him. They wrap around his face, his mouth, muffling his screams. The film reels of the 102 movies that Jonathan Lord starred in during his career. His life as heroes and monsters and myths, as vampires, detectives, soldiers, and pilots. All the films bind Jonathan Lord like mummy's wrappings. And then they begin to burn. Fire covers him, destroying the film, as the booming voice says, All that you once were, you shall become again. Folks, we still have ten pages left. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby Milestone. You get a lot for your buck and a quarter here. <laughs> Seriously, Bobby Milestone regains consciousness, dressed in a silly costume on the set of Vermilion's sci-fi Silverblade movie. Over the intercom, Vermilion taunts Bobby, showing him a clip from the 1940 original when the villain tossed child actor Bobby from the tower. Then Vermilion explains the secret that he and Bobby know that Bobby wasn't really in that scene. The day they were filming it, he was sick, so the director replaced him with another child actor on set, a young Vincent Vermillion, who was dreaming of becoming a dancer like Fred Astaire, whose dreams were shattered like his pelvis and legs when the safety net broke and he suffered a tragic accident on the set, all because he had to fill in for Bobby. For that reason, he has hated Bobby Milestone and orchestrated this whole elaborate revenge scheme. Bobby is to run through the movie set as the three hired assassins chase him with real weapons and try to kill him, all while the cameras are rolling to capture the moment on film. But as Bobby is caught by the first of the three killers aiming a laser pistol at him, suddenly the wall of the set is violently ripped open and a hulking werewolf monster comes in. The killer shoots the creature with his laser, but it has no effect. The creature grabs the man in his arms, and he screams in terror before he dies. Bobby turns in fear and runs the other way, but he's cornered by the second killer, this one carrying an electrified sword. Before the man cuts him down, a voice calls out, stopping the killer. But it's not Vermilion's voice. As Bobby looks up, he sees Jonathan Lord, young and dashing, dressed as the noble prince from the Silverblade. The prince challenges the man with the sword and manages to disarm him with his swift agility. As the killer reaches for a gun, Lord picks up the sword and throws it into the man's chest. The Silverblade reaches his hand out to help Bobby to his feet so they can escape. Bobby cannot understand how he's looking at his friend, who looks nearly fifty years younger and neither can Vermillion or Miss Hofgard as they watch in stunned disbelief from the monitor room. As Silverblade and Bobby near the exit, the third and final hitman steps out and shoots the hero with a flamethrower. Lord goes up in flames, but instead of collapsing and dying, he seems to grow even bigger, larger, like a molten lava man. He hurls a fireball at the third and final killer, and then reaches his arms up, casting fire that engulfs the whole movie set. Miss Hofgard pleads with her boss to escape, but Vermilion waits until he can retrieve the master film reel that captured this whole nightmarish event. 
Bobby tries to make his way through the flames when he hears a recognizable voice saying he's going to take him away to safety. Through the smoke comes the gargoyle prince. He picks up Bobby and flies away. Later that night, Bobby wakes up at Shangri-La, hoping that it was all some horrible dream. But when he opens his eyes, he knows the truth, as the dashing young Jonathan Lord as the Silver Blade tells him the three of them have a lot to discuss, the third being a glowing image of a Maltese falcon hovering above them. To be continued. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's more than a motion picture's worth of story there. Yeah, seriously. Um, So, as I was saying... The first time I read this, I was kind of lost. There are a few things early on in the story that I'll come back to that I kind of didn't like the way Bates sets it up, but I'll I'll come back to that. But I didn't know who Vermillion was, why he wanted to kill Bobby, like this whole Mm -hmm. plot. And I felt like somehow I just, I missed his explanation, his dialogue in the the end when I was reading it. I was like, why is he doing it? Like, what are the stakes? What is going on in this whole thing? And then somehow the second time I read it, I was like, Oh, he was the he was sort of like the stunt double or like the the stand the child stand in and things went wrong and it ruined his career, it broke his legs and he was never able to be a dancer. So he hates the he hates the stars of this movie. It's a classic sort of revenge story, except now he's got all this money and power and he's going to put them through this crazy little crazy little death trap scenario just just out of his own like insanity and vengeance. It's like, well that makes sense and that's kind of cool. So Yeah. There's, yeah, there's there's so much being layered in here with, with that subplot, and of course we need that little plot so we can get some action in. But it's, it is it is kind of confusing, yeah, because it's not. I mean, I I found the motivation a clear, although the mystery and why I think I think this is on purpose and why you want to get more of the story is why the hell did he wait this long to try to enact revenge? But the other thing that's but the more subtle thing is that the only indication that the villain is connected to the remake of the movie Silverblade is that one panel. And it's just a, not a very small, and not very large writing, which has a million pictures. Mm-hmm. One really does have to read quite closely to figure out and connect that because where it says Vermillion pictures, we do not see that name again for, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's a long time. Yeah. It's not obvious that, mm-hmm. The, this villain is the producer of this movie, which has triggered the anger of our hero. And, and but right it's still off, a mystery why he's waited this long to do such an, a simple act of revenge. And right off the bat, like we get, okay, Bobby Milestone is our narrator, but he's telling yeah. the story of this other character, Jonathan Lord. And it really seems like, okay, it, he, he is our narrator. Bobby is our, our you know, our eyes and our ears to tell us this story, but he's going to be telling us about Lord. Lord is the star of this story, and, and Bobby is just kind of the observer, the narrator part of this. And then right away on, like, the next page, people are trying to kill Bobby, like, yeah. with, like, a sniper rifle in public. I was like, wait a minute. Like, why is this guy, like, this, like, schlubby manservant to this movie star, why is this guy somebody that they're going to assassinate? I was like, I'm really confused here. Like, that that was kind of the thing where I, I think, you're, you're absolutely right that they needed to establish the menace of this Vincent Vermillion guy right away, because right. the first issue needs action, and we get a ton of that at the end. So you need to know who the villain is and what he's capable of. But I just wish that, A, we knew who he was and his connection to the movie earlier, and maybe... Mm-hmm maybe kind of get a little bit of a, like some understanding of what's going on before we know that he's he was almost going to kill this guy in public or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, but there's a lot of set pieces that Bates have to put in place. But, but while, we're, while we're on this subject, though, uh, let's get from the story necessities to what Gene Colan does. Because in that panel where we first see uh, Grimillion, it's three tiers. And the first panel is Bobby walking out of the shop with the purchase under his arm, the second panel is a close-up of him in profile through a sniper's scope. And the third panel is the sniper looking through the scope. And the profile of the intended victim is looking at the panel where his attempted assassin is looking at him. Yeah, with a so rifle. It's wonderfully right. done. Yep. And then you go down to the second tier. And this is something I really admire about the great comic artists. It's Bobby walking. And he has advanced from his position in the above tier. 
So Colin is deliberately drawn him so that he's farther along the sidewalk than he was, at least in our perspective. Now, we don't have any real sense of where he was on the sidewalk in front of what shop or anything, that we don't need that. But just the eye knows he's not dead center. Right. He's more to the right of the panel. Like, you know, this is why good panels work, why good page layouts work. Right, and right. Up, yeah. We, within the, within uh, the, we see him in three different panels, and within yeah. those three panels, he's moving left to right throughout each three. Yeah. There's a, there's a sequence in a Fantastic Four story that has bugged me for a low these 30 years. <laughs> the torch is flying in from left to right, and the panel below it, he's still flying left to right, but he's closer to the left of the panel than the right of the panel. It's like he's flying backwards, and Aww. it has always annoyed me so much. <laughs> but this this is so nice. The character's walking, and then we go right back to our uh, intended assassins. Their relationship to each other is still the same. The, the shooter is in the foreground, the mastermind is behind her, and it's uh, it's quite a mystery. We don't know who they are. We know we have her name, we don't know his name, mm. and we don't know why they're doing this. And a great big close-up of our bearded bad guy. Yeah. Yeah, the, the next time we see him is when he's auditioning the killers, who <laughs> have sort of the, the rakish pirate look about them, which is nice. Yeah. And then... Yeah, right in the middle of it, we don't even realize it's him at first. We kind of get this this scene of these two dancers. It's like a Fred Astaire dance like number with a beautiful woman, and he spins her, and she crashes out the window. And it's not until you turn the page that you realize this was Vermilion's like horrible dream, like that this is part of his his story, his pain, and we still really don't know at this point why he's having this dream. Um, and this is also deliberately confusing, and it must be deliberate, because when we have seen Vermillion, he is a larger man mm-hmm. with red-orange hair and a red-orange mustache and goatee. But in the dream, he's a tall, dark-haired man right. with no mustache, no goatee, and no signature red hair. So is he dreaming of himself, or is he dreaming of mm-hmm. Jonathan Lord? Yeah. We don't know. That's, that's it. I, I find that confusing, A, at first. But now, you know, a closer examination, I find it more intriguing. Mm. Why does he dream of himself as somebody else? Yeah, I mean, you get the sense of, like, this is who he wanted to be, who he wishes he should mm-hmm. have been. Yeah. One of the things that really impressed me about the art in this is, for a comic book that does not feature superheroes, at least not, like, overtly, like, the type that we're used to in, like, in, in larger Marvel DC type of comics, we don't have people in garish costumes that are easy to recognize. We have right. otherwise normal people, and really three kind of main principal characters. We've got Lord, we've got Bobby, and we've got Vermilion. And they're each pretty distinct and easy to recognize, even, like, no matter how they're dressed. Like, yeah. Colin just, like, very simply, like, you you like you know who Vince Vermilion looks. I mean, you, you described it. He's got, like, the, the reddish hair that's very thin on top, kind of balding, and the facial hair. But even his body type. He's short, yeah. he's rotund, he's got he looks kinda of like crunched up, like like mm-hmm. way, like like almost like caricaturish, like a you know, like a kind of like waddles and you, and you kinda of get the sense that he he probably doesn't move quite right and we'll find out later that it's because like his his pelvis was shattered, his legs are all broken and messed up, so he's he's got like a he's he's got a sort of physical handicap, a physical disability or deformity at which uh, I, you know, like without casting aspersions or anything, that is generally a physical shorthand to show that there is something corrupt about a character. You know, That's right. If, if there's a physical problem with them, that a lot of times in visual media it speaks to something internally that is wrong with them too. So it's easy to see a villain that way. Yeah, and Bobby, has, Bobby Milestone, our, our narrator, has a very distinct profile, yep. um, which is quite consistent all the way through it, and and Jonathan Ward. Uh, also has a distinct look, which is if you look closely, Colin is so good. Um, he when he we see the flashback what he used to look like, it, it's consistent. He looks the same but older now. Uh, but the thing I love about what how Lord is depicted, and this is also the tip of the hat, hat to uh, Joe Orlando on his colors. Yeah. He wears these white framed eyeglasses with pink lenses. Mm-hmm. And it's a very distinctive thing, especially in our in our first look at Jonathan Lord. He's he's in his screening room watching the film, and for you young folks, he's watching real film. He's not watching a disc or a videotape or a TV. He's watching a film being projected. But um, he's in the dark, 
uh, his skin is tinted blue from the light of the film, and his eyeglasses are still have a, a rosy pink tint to them. It's wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, you might call those rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. There you as he's go. staring at his past. On, on the screen, yeah, no, it's oh, it's beautiful. I I didn't even think about that. You're right, but like the coloring there by Joe Orlando, especially on those pages, that gives you oh. so much information about his character. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, like the the third act of this, when we actually get into like the action sequences, yeah, this is one time where I am a little bit more critical of the art. I don't know that necessarily like the the setting and the choreography is as great as Colin is capable of and I think I think he's making a choice here I'm assuming that this was a conscious choice he's going for the mood and the atmosphere and, and the sense there's a lot of, of bizarre lighting in this yeah but it's hard for me to get a real sense of place yeah that this like yes, sort of is. sci-fi like corridors and all these things and like these costumes that I mean we're told that this is part of a movie set but I I feel like I'm not really getting that. I don't really have a sense of the geography of that. And maybe that's mm-hmm. because Bobby is kind of lost and he's just running through a maze and, and he's supposed to be a little bit disoriented out of it. Yeah, but, I can I can buy that. But yeah. it is it is very confusing. And also because of the the costume that Bobby is in. <laughs> it's sort of like uh, it's it's a purple Apollo spacesuit with Jester Dilly yeah. Bobbers on yes, top. Yes, that's what I was, I was like. Is that like a si- it's so space jester? Odd. It and it sort of takes me out of. What am I looking at? Who, who, wait a second. What's going? Why is he? It's not. Where is he? What's going to happen? Oh my goodness, he's in danger. It's why has he got that on his head? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I reading more into it, I would assume that it's because Vermillion just wants to another indignity to heap on this guy that he hates that he wants to kill. He wants him to look foolish. Yeah, but. Still, it's kind of like that's that's a little bit more distracting. So it's it's hard to get the menace that they're going through. So, oh, yeah. I just figured something out though. Okay, looking at this, where the first assassin comes in, he's bursting through the movie screen that yeah. Bobby's watching. But I just figured that out now because <laughs> I I was well again I was distracted. And this time there's a close up of Bobby, and we see he has some sort of war paint on his face. Over the bridge of his nose and under his eye and then up around his eye, this red, yeah. deliberate thing. And it's hinted at in a previous image, although not as... Yeah, it's there. It's, all, it's always there. Um, again, we're left to be distracted by that rather than say, ooh, Bobby's in a predicament. No, Bob, Bobby's got weird things on his head and weird things on his face. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is very disorienting for the reader. Yeah, and... If that was the decision, because it's supposed to be disoriented for Bobby too, I, I, okay. But I, I wish there had just maybe been another way of approaching this. But mm-hmm. you definitely get the sense, like the again, the atmosphere of it. And once the monsters show up, I mean, that's it's, that's all you all you need to focus on. Um, and and it, this is why you hire Gene Colan. Right, right. And this is just. A, <laughs> It's a terrifying monster that's, you know, yeah, I mean, this, oh this is sort of yeah, what the, the creature on the front is supposed to look like. It's it's part werewolf, part simian, part something else, but it's just, whew. Mm-hmm. And, and the letter yeah. that, that Gaspar gives was just like these giant letters of just like the yeah. screams and the roars and everything. And, and the and, victim, the letters are backwards. Yeah, yes, yes. He's being yes. squeezed so tight, his words are coming out like Zatanna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and when, uh, when on page 24, when it first rips through, and you get like this three-part in the bottom corner, this close-up just like getting closer and closer on the camera, and yes. we, we have to infer that this is Vincent Vermillion screaming through that, just, what is that? That. Trying to like figure out like what what is happening in like, this thing. And, and I kind of wish we we cut back to him a little bit sooner to kind of get his sense of what the heck am I, like, what am I witnessing? What's going wrong with my perfectly elaborate death trap? However, I think this is also a very deliberate choice to remind the reader that this is all being filmed. Mm -hmm. It was mentioned, mentioned two pages, uh, three pages before this, this cameras. Now we see, uh, the cameras are are getting this as well. Bobby's run around, but he's still getting. And, and obviously, that becomes a major plot point uh, for the cliffhanger. Yeah. What do you think of Silverblade's like 
costume, like it, when he's as like the prince, the nobleman uh, with his actual. Oh, I love look. that. Yeah. He's Although got, that initial pose is very awkward and very weird, but I do like that the striking costume. It's, very, it's kind of like a boy wonder. Yeah, I was gonna say he's got the Robin color scheme going yeah. down and everything. Like, like this. Bare arms, red tunic. Yeah, open chest with like green, the, the green pants and yellow boots and gloves and like yeah. it might it might just be a, like a lighting effect that casts like this yellow on his on his cross. There is area. definitely yeah, there's definitely that happening. There he's uh, he's established Colin and Jansen and Orlando have established that this big yellow grid is uh, like a disco dance floor. It's all <laughs> this blue light coming up from below, so there's a lot of up lighting, which. Uh, you know, God bless Joe Orlando. He's magnificent. He's consistent, but it just makes it hard to see what it, what things are. Yeah, yeah. But once we get to the next, I mean, like then it's like the the choreography and the fighting and how fluid he moves and how graceful yeah. as he disarms the second assassin and takes the weapon, throws it back at him. Um, yeah, I, I love all of that. I think that action is really, really good. Yeah. Um, and, and I like that. Like we, I knew. Like they, they set it up early, so they had to come out. We had to see the gargoyle again by the end of this. Like of all mm-hmm. the characters that he comes out as, we had to see that again because that was what we saw at the very beginning when he's watching the film. Yeah. As I was saying, like I mean, this this confused me at first, but like once I got into the story, I was like, okay, now I understand the the revenge plot and everything like that. I am really fascinated by this character, Jonathan Lord, who is so obsessed with his his prime and his youth and what he looked like in those films that he has never been able like he he just rejected everything else he has no love for anything in his life except for him and mm-hmm. now he's sort of cursed as the character was in his movie and, but he has all these powers like he's he's supernaturally imbued with the power of every character that he has played in these 102 movies, and and we get hints of it that he has played a Sherlock type of character. Soldiers, warriors, uh, vampires, other monsters, and everything like that. And this just kind of like sets it up like there's 11 other issues in the series. This is the only one that I have read, but after this, I was like, I do want to follow this. I do want to read the next issue and everything. And have you? Do you you have the other? I I don't have any others yet, but I definitely have to look for them, so... Yeah, I, I I said when uh when when you uh, accepted my uh, my offer to to review the story, I uh, I dug it out and I dug out the series. So I've only read uh, this one and issue two so far, and um, not to give too much away, but in issue two, there's a great little piece, much like what they did with Watson, with some text pieces. So the inside front cover and continued onto the inside back cover. Uh, purports to be a reprint of an article from a film magazine uh, from the early 1960s comparing Jonathan Lord and Tyrone Power and Errol Flynn. And and Colin provides uh, an illustration that looks like a black-and-white photograph of the three of them. (laughs) And one of the the little bit of information we glean there is that Jonathan Lord, as a film actor, did all kinds of roles. You know, he was a star like um, a Clark Gable kite, yeah. but he was also a star like Lon Chaney yeah. Sr. Yeah. So he would do, he would create these monsters and all, he would do any kind of role. Yeah. And which uh, was, would have been quite unusual, but it, it gives us an opportunity to, for Colin to create all these great characters yeah, exactly. to be, yeah. become. This has a lot of stuff I like. Like, you know, the, the sword and sandal, like the, the, the swashbuckling hero monsters, werewolves, sci-fi guys with lasers and blasters, classic Hollywood cars. Uh, Like one of, one of my favorite kind of tropes or things in, in film is like a sense of verisimilitude where people are Mm -hmm. voyeurism, even when characters are watching other characters. So like characters watching films, characters spying on each other, like, like in rear window, um, things like that. Like some of my favorite types of things. So to get that sense within this story and also just a kind of supernatural spooky ghost story with like these haunted birds and everything like that. Like this hits almost all of my buttons for things that I like (laughs) in in fiction. Like, so to just get this within one issue, I'm like, damn, where have you been all my life? So I don't think Jonathan Lord, uh, played Dr. Frankenfurter. (laughs) He wouldn't wear the fishnets. Sorry. Don't get that button. Yeah. But this is also sort of, uh, a greatest hits, of Gene Colan's comics career. Yeah, uh, yeah. We got we got the great stuff from Tomb of Dracula. We got these big scary monsters and, and, and frightening 
set pieces. We got this fluid action that he did in Daredevil. Right, right. Uh, we get big clunky mechanical things like in Iron Man. Um, we get the, the mysteriousness in these birds, sort of like with Night Force. Mm-hmm. It's just you know because he, he could do everything, and I'm sure we'll get romance eventually in the story. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing. There's a couple of things I want to touch on on the art as it relates to the story, and I, I did a little bit. I mentioned earlier in the there are two pages where we see. Um, close-ups of Jonathan Lord as he's watching the film of these of Silver Blade. And at the top and bottom of the page are little yellow jagged lines, which to me suggest a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack that would be on the on the film itself. There are there are peaks and valleys. If you've got a, a VU meter running there to check our audio quality, you may, you may have something similar <laughs> going on. But it's it's no it's there's no mention of it made. It's just a nice little, in effect, to help remind us that we are what we're not. There's no caption saying, "Meanwhile, Jonathan Lord watches right, the film." Right, right. The panels are rounded, and it's just that little jagged soundtracky effect on the top left and the bottom right of the page on both of the pages where he's watching the film. And actually, but I really, I really like that. And if you notice. It's only the the film images that are in panels. The shots yes. of the shots of Lord watching actually is part of the gutter around. Like it's, it's yeah, like no panel panels. borders on those. Yeah, yeah, it's great. The other cool thing I like um, in the when Bobby finally blows up and, and leaves the house, and this uh, Jonathan Lord has been such a, a a grump. But when Bobby first throws the reel of film, and this stretches out some of my favorite pages because uh, all the all the pages with the film yep. just yep. unspooling everywhere. It's frightening. Mostly because it, it pains me to see that film being destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a great image, page 16. Uh, Bobby throws a reel of film and Lord, almost 80 years old, reads up and grabs it. <laughs> he is. He still has it within him. And I think that it looks good and one can read into the story that, yeah, he's he's going to change into these characters. There's still something in him that has that athleticism, that has that physical timing to be able to... I don't think, I don't think Bobby's you know, the best film thrower in the world, <laughs> but still, he was able to grab it. And that's a nice touch. That he falls like down, he grabs it and falls over. Loses his glasses. Uh, nice, nice little touches by Colin there. Yeah. And never forget, like in that last panel, as Bobby's walking out and, and Lord is on the floor, the statue with the bird in the background. Yes. there, And it's also in the foreground in the first panel yep, yep. on that page. And then like the next couple of pages, 18 through 21, when we get like the film reels kind of coming alive, yeah. like in this... Tales from the Crypt type of like nightmare scenario that you think like would be the death of the character in any other story, but in this one, it's sort of the, the curse, like the legendary rebirth. So, yeah. And uh, also, you know, here's some here's some uh, praise for the for the letterer, not for the big letters, but for the little letters. Where now Jonathan's talking to himself. He's talking to himself in lowercase. Some of the letters are in bold in the beginning of the sentences are capitalized and the bold letters are capitalized, but everything else is in lowercase. And it just looks like he's just muttering to himself. I love when letters pay attention to detail like that. Yeah, and we yeah. can get a sense of the voice. Yeah, Gaspar Saladino was one of the best letters in the biz, so he was... He sure was. Yeah. If you could have one page of original art from this book... Yeah, it'd be one of these, 18 or 19. Yeah. It's like, I can't be greeted at both, right? <laughs> I mean, you can say you like them both. I, mean, I do like them both. I there's like a lot those. of motion, there's action. Motion in the panels. This is another Gene Colan trademark. The panels tilt. And on these pages, they tilt more and more. And by the end, we've lost panel borders entirely. They can't, the panels are literally tumbling off of the page. He, he he was always great with that, with the skewing the panel for to add tension. Yeah, I love those. Uh, page twenty one two is just like like the the light coming down, all oh. the, the film starting to burn, all those little yeah. inset little film reels with the 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 stars and the actors, everything a little bit a little bit different on those 
Um, just the, the detail there. Yeah, all of those pages are amazing. I also, I really like um, page 11. It's a very different type of shot. Um, we get uh, mm. following Jonathan up the stairs of his mansion. We get much more la- like levels and how big the place is. There's a stained glass window in the yeah. back. There's the posters of the type of monsters that he's played. There's a Phantom of the Opera type, an Invisible Man type, a Vampire type. It's. I mean, this is why he he thought it was a museum at first, and then later compares it to a mausoleum, mm-hmm. and just the the sense of servitude up there, just them them going up those stairs and the movement. I like that a lot. I also like the the facing page, page mm-hmm. ten of Bobby dusting, and we see the 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 bunch of falcon statues and an old radio. We see the um, copy of Life magazine from 1945 with handsome Jonathan Lord in a copy of Variety from October 3rd, 1964, where Lord announces his retirement. So these two pages give us a nice sense of his whole career. Yeah, yeah. And what Bobby's life has become, too, during that time. Yes. Whenever I have the time, and I don't know when that will be, but when I have the time, I definitely uh, (laughs) go look up the rest of this series, because I enjoyed the heck out of this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to finishing the story. Now, to pick up the, uh, the two issues I'm missing, too. So I was looking at, uh, did a quick little research into seeing what, because this story takes place about 50 years after Jonathan Lord has become a movie star. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not 50 years since from his retirement. So 50 years ago, people who made their film's debut, film debuts, Jane Alexander, Brian Blessed, Shelley Duvall, Danny DeVito, Pam Greer, Tommy Lee Jones, Diane Keaton, Frank Langella, Susan Sarandon, Sissy Spacek, Sylvester Stallone, Burt Young. Whew. So can you imagine any of those people retiring 20 years ago? Uh, <laughs> uh, and you can still imagine these are, these are active, vital people. Um, you know, just to, I was just trying to think of the probabilities of trying to fit the timeline and the timeline works, works, works well, works fine. Yeah. All right. Well, gosh, that, no, that was an interesting bit of trivia. Oh, the one other thing about this issue that we didn't talk about, but uh, you mentioned it. right on the cover, a free poster inside advertisement. Free poster inside, which I have. Yeah, my copy didn't I come with one. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we get the aftermarket. Yeah, it's a great poster, but it's not by Colin. It is by McFeeter, I think, who did the, the, the paint, yeah, inks did and the color. color. Yeah. yeah, it's a great promotional poster. On the left side, it says, uh, A Star is Born, again, 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 again. <laughs> DC presents Jonathan Lord in Silver Blade. So, yes, yeah, obviously it's supposed to look like a film poster. And, uh, so that banner with the words comes from the left as sort of a slant coming down uh, to about a fifth of the way from the bottom. And on the right-hand side is the big photo, uh, photo, <laughs> a big illustration of Jonathan Lord as the Silver Blade, holding his big old, uh, not at all suggestive Silver Blade <laughs> in his hand. And uh, below that are images of uh, kind of a Wolfman character, a, a mummy character, a robot character, a Phantom of the Opera character, a creature of the Black Lagoon character, and a vampire, a classic vampire in a white tuxedo shirt and white tie in a big black cape and that's all rising up from his star on the hollywood walk of fame which is at the bottom of the page it's a very nice poster and i see a thumbtack hole in it so i had this hung up (laughs) (laughs) whenever i was living at that time all right very cool that is awesome well uh terry thank you very much for volunteering to be on this episode with me um because i i definitely i wanted to talk to somebody who was who was interested in this material and, and had some sort of passion or experience with this so this was a whole lot of fun thank you so much for for letting me crash your little party i i love it i love this idea you have of looking at uh an artist's work and i'm glad i, I, I find it surprising you chose gene colon uh, just because he seems like an artist, most most of his, whose work was ahead of your major collecting time. Um, but it's terrific looking at at the work so far you've looked at, and I hope you really explore more things like this, the, the non-superhero stuff that he did. 
I'm I'm definitely going to try and do a, a variety. Like, I've got, I mean, I will hit certainly, especially within this first season, a bunch of, like, big hits, like the, the other ones that he he's known for. Um, but I definitely, I want to get into some of the, the deeper bench later on. I've got some of his black and white magazine stuff, like some weird horror oh, stuff, yeah. some Howard the Duck. I definitely want to get to... Um, Nathaniel Dusk and Detectives Incorporated. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to it's going to be a matter of time and how, how soon I can get to Oh, sure. It. Yeah. It's a very worthy endeavor, though. Yeah. And it covers you. So. All right. Again, thank you for being on this show and helping me talk about a story uh, by one of my favorite artists. So. Listeners, thank you, as always, for tuning in as well. If you liked our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can also leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. For more information on how you can support this network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And until next time, thank you for listening. You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Boulevard Some that you recognize, some that you've hardly even heard of People who worked and suffered and struggled for fame Some who succeeded and some who suffered in vain
celluloid villains and heroes Because celluloid heroes never feel any pain And celluloid heroes never really 